the semi-provocative title of our, of our sermon, The Son of God versus the Sons of the Devil. That shows you where we're going. Um, it's not an easy or pleasant uh, passage of Scripture that we're dealing with today, but it is a very important passage of Scripture that we're dealing with today. Um, and we'll understand, hopefully, that a lot better at the end. All right. John 8, verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Hard words that Jesus speaks. We better pray. Father, we do ask that uh, we would hear of you, that uh, all those here who love the Father would love the Son and would hear and believe that which the Son says. But that only happens as your Spirit works amongst us. And so we pray for the working of your Spirit to illuminate your Word, to shine your light in our hearts, that we might believe, that we might have a greater understanding of that which we believe. Therefore, that we might have a greater joy in Jesus Christ, recognizing the great dungeon from which he has rescued us. And for those who do not believe, we ask that you would shine savingly in their hearts, that they might come to a knowledge of the truth and might believe in Christ himself. Amen. When I was in seminary, one of my favorite classes was, um, it was a J-term class. It was one of those one-week courses, and it was called Theological Foundations. That has a very impressive title now, doesn't it? Uh, and it was taught by Dr. Roger Nicole, uh, whose biography I'm reading right now. And all it did, all it covered for the Theological Foundations was five things. You might guess what they are. Total depravity, <laughs> unconditional election, <laughs> limited atonement, irresistible grace, 
and the preservation or perseverance of the saints. Yeah, we had a one-week tour de force from Dr. Nicole on the doctrines of grace. That was a great class. And one of the things that he went through in talking about this is he focused on the Gospel of John. And it's because the Gospel of John is filled with the doctrines of grace. And this passage is one of those places that reveals to us the, the difficulty of total depravity and the necessity of unconditional election and irresistible grace. We see in this passage the great predicament that people are in from which Jesus must rescue them. One of the great lines that I wrote down uh, from Dr. Nicole during the course of that week, in which I don't even know why I had to write it down, it's just impressed upon my brain. If you looked at Facebook this morning, you may have seen it on our web page. Faith and repentance are not flowers that grow on the dunghill of human depravity. Let's keep that in mind as we think about this passage this morning. Our big idea is that, and it's going to be a little different, I realized I made a mistake or two in your big idea, so I was pressed for time for presbytery. Apart from grace, we don't understand ourselves or Christ. That's really the, the point of this whole passage that it drives us to. And, and, and part of that is, I think, to deepen our gratitude and joy and salvation because we remember we weren't sort of lost. We were utterly lost. Okay? First part I want us to think about is that apart from grace, we don't get who we are. Okay? Jesus has been having an extended discussion with these people uh, who initially appeared to believe in who he was, uh, but we're seeing that they really don't when he examines uh, more fully who he is. Once again, we hear them say, we are Abraham's children. They seem to think Jesus doesn't get this. They're the ones who really don't get it, so to speak. They want Jesus to get this thing right. And it's as if, as I was pondering this, it's as if they were claiming to be card-carrying members of the true covenant community. That's really, I think, the force of what this is. They're not just talking about physical descent, but they also are talking about spiritual descent. We are spiritually descended from Abraham. We belong in the covenant, they're saying. I've got some cards here. One of them says, although now it's expired because it's past January 1st, but it says that I'm a card-carrying, so to speak, member in good standing of the PCA. It's a very important card to have, I tell you. I can't get into GA without it, okay? It's got to be uh, updated. So Marty's, Marty's on that, I know. Um, but, you know, uh, I don't know who'd want to see this. I don't carry it normally. It, it hides in my office somewhere. But if you want to see it, this shows you I'm in. In the, I'm in in the PCA, okay? Amy was clearing my, cleaning up my office yesterday uh, and found this. <laughs> For those of you who can't see that far, it's a Blockbuster card. <laughs> I used to be in, even though they spelled my name wrong. 
at Blockbuster. If I could find one today, I could present them this card, and I could rent a, a video. And I guess I'd have to rewind it when I was done. Um, <laughs> they used to be in, and now they're out because they did not see the changes of technology. They're out, man. Like the people who owned Blockbuster, these people don't see the changes that are taking place in front of them. They, don't, they think they're in. I mean, Blockbuster probably never thought they'd go out of business. They were it, man. These guys don't realize that they are now out. They don't see the changes that were coming around them in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus speaks to them in response to this in terms of if then. Essentially, if you really were Abraham's children, you would do what Abraham did. And so, let's stop for a second. What did Abraham do? There's a great summary of that in Genesis 26, verse 5. God says, Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Now, if we think about last week, what was Jesus, I mean, what is this whole fight over, this disagreement? It's about whether they listen to his voice or not. Are they obeying his voice? Are they holding to his word? Are they remaining in his word? And that's the problem. They're not. But Abraham did. Okay, Abraham was one who, though he, he did this imperfectly, just like you and me, Abraham believed God. Abraham believed God's promises. Abraham walked uprightly with him. Yeah, he sinned, but he kept coming back. Okay? He kept saying, I'm wrong, moving forward. So it's not about perfection that we're talking about here, but the fruit of faith. We see that Abraham's faith resulted in certain works or deeds in Abraham's life. And this is sort of the question to them. If you have the faith of Abraham, you should have the deeds of Abraham, but conversely, but as, as, in addition, rewind, zip, okay. Instead of that, that's the word I wanted. Instead of having the deeds of Abraham, you have completely different deeds. Because you are accusing me, Jesus says. You're trying to kill me, Jesus says. And those were definitely not the things that Abraham would do. Now, we haven't gotten to that section where he says that Abraham looked forward to this day and rejoiced. Okay? They're in that day, and they're not rejoicing. Okay? So they're... Their whole posture towards Jesus is the antithesis of what Abraham's posture towards Jesus was. They're rejecting him. They're seeking to kill him. So what we see here is that there is a massive difference between how they view themselves and how Jesus views them. That hasn't changed. All around the world... Throughout time, people have always had a, a, a view of themselves. And that view was predominantly contrary to the view of Jesus, how Jesus viewed them. 
most people think they're pretty good. They've got it kind of together. Maybe they don't have it completely together, but you know, I'm pretty good. Jesus' view of them is in stark difference to that. But now, these people up the ante. They've moved past, we are Abraham's children, to say, we have one father, God. Now, they're not meaning by this what Jesus means when he calls God his father. Okay, What they're doing is they're applying a variety of Old Testament statements to themselves. One of those is in Exodus 4. God said to Moses, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Okay. So they are in part declaring they are Israel, the people of God, and therefore his firstborn son. We see as well in Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 22. Oh, sorry, verse 9. With weeping, okay, this is, this is after the exile. So this is the restoration promise. So you have the context. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I shall lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they will not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. And so here he's speaking to those who have uh, come back to him and therefore are going to come back to the land at that point in time, at the end of the exile. And he, he's de- interesting that he sort of alludes to that whole Psalm 23 thing with the brooks of water and the straight path. I'm a shepherd to them. I'm also a father to them. And so these are the, some of the passages that uh, these individuals have in mind. They're, they're basically saying, we are the, the spiritual sons of Abraham, therefore we are the people of God, we are the sons of God, and we are the ones who have repented and come back. Again, they are saying that they are in, and they're implying that Jesus is out. There is no reconciliation, there's no middle way between these two positions. And that's when Jesus drops the bomb on them. This is the bomb that everybody eventually has to hear, to understand and grapple with in coming to faith. You are of your father, the devil. That's not a very nice thing to say. Okay? Sometimes love says hard things. Sometimes love speaks the truth, not to destroy, but to provide an opportunity for repentance and change. Jesus loved them enough to tell them the truth, which they could not see, about themselves. That they were not sons of Abraham spiritually. They were not sons of God, but they were actually sons of the devil. And as a result, they follow their father, the accuser. They continue to make false accusations against Jesus, which is why Jesus later says, who of you can convict me of sin? But they were making all kinds of false accusations. That's what... Diablos, which is the Greek word used here, indicates accuser, one who brings charges. 
And the charges that Satan often brings can be false. And so they're just like him, bringing false charges. As Jesus says later, he was a murderer from the beginning. That idea that in the garden, he sets up Adam and Eve and deceives them so they will take the fruit of the tree that God has declared comes with the penalty of death. And so from the beginning, he has been seeking to kill humanity and persons from the beginning. And here they are, just like their father, seeking to kill Jesus. We live in a world, brothers and sisters, that is in full-scale denial about its true character about who people really are. Well, as I ponder this, I think of The Empire Strikes Back. That pivotal scene near the end of the movie when Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker are fighting it out, and Luke is apparently about to lose, but you see that Darth Vader is actually toying with him because then he says, Luke, I am your father. To which, of course, Luke doesn't go, Daddy! (laughs) But he, he cries in existential anguish, unable to believe that it is true. No! Okay. The scripture does not record them going, No! But I'm sure that's probably what was going through their minds. This can't be true. There's no way I can be a son of the devil. There's no way. But just as Luke really was the son of Anakin Skywalker, so these people were indeed sons of the devil. You see, people are not born neutral. They have a will that is under the influence of a corrupt heart. And that is part of why we read from Ephesians chapter 2 this morning, because it's talking about the Ephesians and reminding them from whence they came they too were like everyone else who walked in the, you know, following the power of the prince of the air, doing his will. They too once were sons of the devil. All people are born sons of Adam and therefore sons of the devil. Because of Adam's great sin in the garden, all people, as it talks about in Romans 5, have come under sin and the power of death. Everybody. When Amy and I were talking about her rearranging and cleaning up my office, we talked about the position of my desk in my office at home. And I said, you know, if you move my desk, what's going to happen? Well, when we were painting my office, somebody who shall be nameless spilled paint, a dark paint, on the carpet. So there's this big splotch that we couldn't get it all out. That, that carpet is forever, in a sense, ruined, stained forever. The human heart, because of Adam's sin, is forever tainted. You can cover it up like Adam and Eve tried to do with the fig leaves, but it doesn't go away. And one day it will be seen for what it is. That's everybody. Everybody apart from Jesus, because he is not descended of Adam. Okay, because... Okay. Bear that stain. Bear that connection. 
So people are not born neutral, but they are, born, they are born enslaved to sin. And so here Jesus puts his finger on why they need him to rescue them from their own father. He's sort of like CPS, I guess, but in a greater way. All right, secondly, sort of the hinge of this passage We see that Jesus proceeds from and was sent by the Father. And so here we have a sense of his origins as well as his mission. See, in the midst of all this, there is this profound section of this sentence when said by Jesus about who he is. He says, I came from God. Now, there's a lot of I came's in all of this, and they're not all the same word. Okay? This probably could be better translated as it is, I think, in the NASB translation. Proceed, or come forth, or come out into the world. And he's talking about his origins, that he is from God, that he is God, as we see in John chapter 1, the very, very beginning, the first few verses. This is about his origin. It's not like... I'm from Nashua, New Hampshire. Not that kind of origin. He's not speaking about, well, I came from heaven, although he did. But it's more like, I am from Tony and Elaine Cavallaro. I have proceeded from my parents. He has proceeded from the Father eternally, never begotten, but eternally the Son. Okay, it doesn't mean he was born, but the point is that he was with God and he was God. So, I came from God, and I am here out of God. While he's heavenly, as he speaks this, he was presently in this world. Now, why would Jesus, the divine word of God, and God the word, be here? Why would he not be with his Father in heaven? And so Jesus then follows this up with, I came not of my own accord, or not in accordance with my own will. This is the the root verb that we saw for the one proceed. Okay, This is more simply to come. The idea here, of course, is that Jesus is saying, I did not come on my own. This was not my idea. I'm I'm not uh, doing some rogue thing. I'm not like the gods of the Greeks. Okay, who just decide, oh, I'll pop down to earth and have some fun for a while, and then I'll pop back up to the, the Parthenon and uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. He's here on a mission. He's not on a pleasure cruise, however good pleasure cruises are. <laughs> okay, but he wasn't on one. Surely he delighted in a different way, in a sense, uh, uh, in, in the creation that the God had made, that his father and that he had also made with him. But he was on a mission. He sent me. The Father sent the Son. And here we have the verb from which we, that we get that word apostle. Okay? Jesus was sent on a mission. Jesus is on a mission as a delegate or an ambassador to tell people what the Father has told him. He is to repeat that which he has heard. 
And so these things that he's speaking to them are not things that he's come up with on his own, but they are things that he has heard from the Father. Imagine that for a second. They think they are children of God. And he says, you're not my kids. That's what's going on here. Hopefully none of you have ever heard that from your earthly father. You're no son of mine. But that is what's going on. It's meant to provoke a deep crisis within their souls, the answer for which is only Christ. He sent me. Jesus has, therefore, a message that we must believe, but we find that it is resisted by a world that is under Satan's influence, and that's why Dr. Nicole says faith and repentance are not flowers that grow on the dunghill of human depravity. They don't grow naturally in this world. So Jesus, again, one of John's themes, okay? Just like Martin Luther said, I pound the gospel into your heads every day. John is pounding this into our heads. Jesus is the eternal Son sent by the Father for the salvation of sinners. So our third thing. Remember I said the second was a hinge. So let's go back to this. Apart from grace, we don't get who Jesus is. People just don't get who he is, apart from grace. That, you know, great teacher. They might think nice things of Jesus, but they miss the point of Jesus. Marty and I, well, yeah, well, we'll get back to that in a second. On the way back from Presbytery, we were, Marty and I were talking about a devotional that was led by uh, one of the other pastors and um, started talking more about, you know, the kingdom of Steve. You know, I don't want to talk about your kingdom. Because you see, when I'm living in the kingdom of Steve, you're all my subjects. And there's no grace in the kingdom of Steve. When you fail... You feel my wrath. Okay? I'm not supposed to live in the kingdom of Steve, and neither are you. Those people were, li- were living in the kingdom of, you know, whatever their name is. Abraham or Jacob or Timaeus. So they're wrong about themselves, and they're also wrong about him. They don't need him to come into their kingdom. They need him to conquer their kingdom. They need to submit to the kingdom of the Son. But they just don't get it. See, we usually don't get it when we're living in our own kingdom. It's natural for us. And we don't really grasp what we're doing. They respond to Jesus earlier, early in this, this passage. <clears throat> going back a little bit. We were not born of sexual immorality. This is most likely functioning in two ways. 
in one way, it's a, sort of a sly put down of Jesus' questionable origins. Uh, they may have heard the rumors that uh, Mary gave birth less than nine months before, you know, after the, the consummation, they thought, of the wedding. Who's your daddy, Jesus? That's what they're asking. Not really understanding that his, God is his father, but this is also, again, a sort of an arrogant proclamation that they know who theirs is. And spiritually, they're wrong again. Jesus expresses precisely why they do not understand what he is saying in two ways, which are essentially two sides of the same coin. He starts off with, if God were your father, like you claim, if this was true, you would love me, which is not what they're doing. They're rejecting him, and they're seeking to kill him. If anyone says that God is their father, and they don't love Christ, guess what? God's not their father. There are a lot of people out there who think that God is their father, and yet they have nothing to do with Jesus. They're being deceived by the evil one. Those who love the Father love the Son. Why? Precisely what we see in John chapter 1 and what we've seen even here in John 8. Because he proceeds from the Father, because he's been sent by the Father, why would you hate the one the Father sent? But more than that, he is the perfect representation of the Father, perfectly reflecting all of His glory and His character. He is the one who properly and perfectly interprets the Father to us. So how can you say you love the Father, but hate the one who's identical to the Father? We joke in our family about Dan Hrick being the good twin and his brother Dave being the evil twin. <laughs> They're, they're both good guys. They're identical twins. It makes no sense, really, to love one and hate the other. The Son is the exact representation of the Father. Anyone who loves the Father must therefore love the Son. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Jesus continues, whoever is of God hears the words of God. Now remember, Jesus is claiming to speak that which he heard from the Father. I'm of God, Jesus says. I hear the things the Father speaks, and I speak to you what the Father has said. And the reason you don't hear is because you're not of him. They have a big problem. It's not just they have clogged ears or they have diminished hearing because they went to too many rock concerts or whatever. They have a huge spiritual problem which blocks them from hearing God's word to them. Grace 
that irresistible grace is the only thing that produces faith in Christ because it enables people to hear, finally, the words of the Father. The second way that Jesus expresses this is this. The reason, and this is so blunt, it's ridiculous. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. They're rather of the devil. They cannot listen, not despite the fact Jesus tells the truth, but they cannot listen precisely because Jesus tells the truth. There's some people who cannot believe the truth, no matter how it is spoken to them, precisely because they have been told lies all their lives and believed lies all their lives, and they can't recognize the truth for what it is. They speak rather like the devil. They hear like the devil. Their father is the father of lies. There are lots of people this week who think that Bill Belichick is the son of the devil. And I don't think he's a Christian, so he is spiritually. So, um, But there's some people that automatically, whatever he says out of his mouth, it's a lie. You could say it's sunny outside. Well, actually, you know, it's cloudy outside. <laughs> no, it's not. There are people who have a hard time hearing truth. Because of past experience or of their own personal character. Dr. House notes, everybody lies. Now, when he says that, which he often says in the show, he does not mean that everybody lies all of the time, but that everybody, at some point, does lie. And so you, you don't necessarily believe everything they say in the diagnostic room. There are lots of people who lie to their doctors for various reasons. These people are people who cannot recognize the truth when it's in their face, and they lie about the truth because it comes naturally to them. They lie. We see this. Psalm 58, verse 3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. From conception, they're estranged from God. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. In other words, no one has to tell these beautiful little children that we baptize how to lie. If you're a parent, you know that as soon as they can speak, they will lie about what they have done or not done. No one had to teach them that. It's from the womb. It's from birth. Romans 3, verse 4. And by no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Paul was dealing with accusations against God, and he's saying, God is true. God does not lie. But all men lie, especially when they lie about God. 
And then First Corinthians, Second Corinthians, chapter four, which we keep going back to, because it's pertinent yet again. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Uh, that ties all that stuff together, doesn't it? He's the image of God, perfect representation of God, and they can't behold him because their eyes have been blinded by the evil one. So due to the moral and spiritual inability, they are unable to recognize and believe the truth. In other words, they do not repent and believe. And the reason why they do not get Christ, and the reason why they do not understand Christianity, is not outside of them. In other words, it's not your fault. Okay? Yeah, you may blur the vision at times when, when the church sins, but ultimately the reason they don't believe is internal. It's inside of them. R.C. Sproul notes in this passage, The word of God that we read and proclaim will fall on deaf ears unless God himself attends that word by the Holy Spirit and opens the ears of those who hear it. He, of course, is speaking about regeneration, which Jesus talks about in John chapter 3, which we've already wrestled with, and also also ideas that we saw in John chapter 6. That's why Dr. Nicole called this the most Calvinistic of Gospels. It keeps pressing forward into us that inability precisely that we might recognize in part how awesome it is, how incredible, how counterintuitive it is that God has saved us. That we might have a deeper, more abiding, more satisfying joy in Jesus Christ because we did not choose Him, He chose us. That we were in this incredible predicament and liked it. And He reached down and pulled us up out of the pit that we had made into a nice house for ourselves. John wants us to grasp the incredible wonder of salvation because everything from a human standpoint was stacked against it. But as Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, what is impossible for man is possible for God. And our salvation, which is impossible for us, is not just possible but actual in Christ. Humbling, isn't it? It ought to be. We who understand that and and grasp this should be among the most humble Christians on earth. Because we recognize, as it says in Ephesians 2, it is all of grace through faith, and all of that is not of ourselves, but it is a gift of God. Your salvation is an incredible gift. Rejoice. In the gift you didn't want. In the gift that you fought against, some of you for years. Rejoice that God didn't give up. Rejoice that God 
changed your heart. Rejoice that God made you desirous of that gift because he showed you a glimpse of who you are. Remember the story of Dorian Gray. You see, Dorian made a deal with the devil. And he had a self-portrait done. And the deal with the devil was that Dorian himself would not age. But that the consequences of his wayward and wicked life would be placed upon the portrait. And it was not very long before he had to hide that portrait in his attic because it became so incredibly hideous because of his wickedness. There was the Dorian Gray that everyone saw. And then there was the Dorian Gray God saw in the attic. And he had to meet himself just like we had to meet ourselves. Fortunately, God doesn't show us everything, or we would be completely undone, worse than Isaiah. But he only shows us that, like Isaiah, he might touch us, heal us, restore us by his grace, his love, his compassion and mercy. All right. The God who took on flesh and blood came to a world poised against God and truth. People lack this self-awareness, being blinded and deceived by sin and Satan. They cannot see their overwhelming need. They cannot see how Jesus is the only one who can meet those overwhelming needs. And yet, He came. He was sent to meet those needs for all that the Father had given Him, as we talked about in John 6 and that we talked about from the Westminster Confession. So if you believe you are among those who were given to him as a gift from the Father, you have received the truth about yourself, and you've received the truth about Christ, and so you should be filled with joy and gratitude because God has granted you grace upon grace upon grace through his Son. Rejoice. Rejoice. If you haven't received the truth, it is time to believe what the Son has said about you, but also what he says about himself, that you might repent and believe, trusting in the grace and goodness of God the Savior who came for sinners. Let's pray. Father, I do ask that your Spirit would be at work in us in a profound way not necessarily just in this moment, but in the course of this week, in the, in the course of the rest of our lives, so that we might really have a, a, a growing awareness of how desperate our situation was. That we might have a growing awareness of the immensity of your grace towards us, the fullness of it, the, the efficacy and power of it to rescue us, that we might be filled with such incredible joy in our salvation. That we might never toy with the idea that you have forsaken us or forgotten us. But rest 
and your unchanging love. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.